you know what I'm, what I'm talking about if I mention the providence of God? You know what the providence of God is? It's kind of an old school term. It's not discussed much anymore. It's, it's kind of a part of the sovereignty of God, but it's, it's distinct. It's different. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, I know some of the guys here still listen to J. I think now the late J. Vernon McGee. He defined, he defined the providence of God this way. God's providence, according to J. Vernon, is the means by which God directs all things, animate and inanimate things, seen and unseen things, good and evil things. So it's the means by which God directs all things toward a worthy purpose, which means his will must finally prevail. Maybe it's easier to describe than define the providence of God. God is going to get done what God wants to get done, right? Occasionally, God intervenes in what's going on in the world in miraculous ways. Ways that are easy to tell. Man, that had to have been God. When, when God... Uh, I don't know, when, he, when Daniel was thrown in the lion's den and God made sure hungry lions didn't eat old Daniel, it was obvious to tell that God was intervening. It was miraculous. The providence of God is the name for how God intervenes, stays active in, um, in our world in ways where we can't tell he's doing anything. God it's almost more miraculous than the miracles the providence of God is because God's providence allows him to work through the conscious, independent decisions you and I make or other people make. People that aren't thinking about God. Maybe they don't even like God. Maybe they openly hate God. And God can still work through what they decide to do. That's God's providence. Biblical examples are things like, if you know the story of Queen Esther, the king of Persia just happened to choose the one Jew in his harem to be his queen. It was his decision, yet somehow God was in control. The providence of God is is not easy to see in real time. It's kind of usually impossible to see in real time, unlike the miraculous. I know as I look, but you can look backwards over your life and oftentimes see, wow, I didn't know what God could possibly be doing at that point in my life. But now I'm here to tell you, God was working. It was, as Rachel and I look back over our our marriage, when to our regret and shame, when we got married, doing the, the things of the Lord was not a part of our life at all. But we could share, and we made ignorant decisions, foolish decisions. But we could, all morning, we could spend all morning sharing stories of how God was at work, even when we were not thinking of him. He was directing us toward his will. 
We've been studying a really obvious passage, place to see the, the providence of God at work. And that's the last couple of weeks we've studied the crucifixion as taught in the book of Matthew. And it's really easy to see that God was at work in the decisions of people who didn't like God or didn't stand up for God, right? The disciples ran away. That was their decision. God was at work in that. Peter denied Jesus. God was at work in that. Jesus' enemies were allowed to arrest and, and torture and crucify him. But God was obviously at work. Last week, Jesus died on the cross. And today, there's a less obvious place to see God's providence at work. It's the story of Jesus' burial. It's a good place to remind ourselves that God is always at work. Even in times and places where we don't understand what he could possibly be up to, he hasn't stopped working in his providence in our lives. Let's, let's read our passage today, and then I want to discuss, we'll, we'll study through it, and then I want to discuss how this passage shows us the providence of God and what you and I can learn from that. Matthew chapter 27, verses 55 through 66, read this way. So Jesus has just died, and in verse 55, many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered that the body of Jesus be given to Joseph. Verse 59, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And Joseph rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, or Saturday, the Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. And they said, Sir, remember when, that, when, when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples might come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. And that deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to the religious leaders, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and they made Jesus' grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So Matthew picks up the story after Jesus' death by almost in passing in verses 55 and 56, and then again in 61, Almost in passing, he mentions these women who have stayed close to Jesus as he was killed, as he died, and as he um, was buried. This is, in, this is an important detail, really, for next week's passage when we get to the resurrection. 
because they're the first eyewitnesses. Now, I, I think we all are probably familiar with the sort of second-class status that women held in the first century Near East. They were powerless, uh, ignored, sort of invisible. Can God work through situations where people are held in, in low esteem like that? Here's what God does. The sort of invisible nature of these women made it to where the Jews and the Romans, neither one, cared that they stayed close to Jesus. In any of the Gospels, did you ever hear anyone accusing these women, hey, you were with that guy Jesus? You ever read that? No. Did they, was, were they ever threatened with arrest? No. You know why? Because no one cared. They weren't seen as a threat. They weren't seen as a problem. They really weren't seen. And so they, without much risk, can, can stay close to Jesus, care for him, but also they can be there while Jesus is buried so they know the spot. They know his address in the tomb so that Sunday morning we can be confident they didn't come to an empty tomb because they were at the wrong one. They were right there in the right place, at the right time, to become the very first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Now, a problem these women have because of the status in which they're held in society, we know from the other Gospels they have a heart, they want to treat Jesus' body well. They want to give him a respectful Jewish burial. The problem is, they don't have enough property rights to even be given a, a dead body. And even if they did, they're from Galilee. They don't have any place to bury Jesus. Enter Joseph of Arimathea. In verses 57 through 60, we read the story of kind of out of nowhere. It's the only place he really shows up in the Gospels. We read of a man who really in many ways is the exact opposite of these Galilean women. Because he's a guy with all the status you can imagine in, in, in Israel. If we collect the evidence from the other Gospels, from all the Gospels about Joseph, here's kind of the picture we get. Mark tells us that Joseph was um, a highly regarded member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. So he was not just a member of the highest council. He was a bigwig even among the bigwigs that made up the highest council, the high council. He had become a disciple of Jesus, but John tells us he was a secret disciple. He'd become a disciple secretly. Here's what this means. He had come somehow to understand that Jesus was who he had claimed to be. He was the Christ and the Son of God, but he hadn't told anyone. He stood to lose a lot. His position, um, his, his power, maybe even his personal safety or his freedom. So he was a secret disciple. Matthew wants us to, to mainly focus on two aspects of Joseph, two characteristics. Matthew tells us that he was rich and that he was a disciple. By the way, before I say anything else, I want you to know this. 
Matthew, the author of this book we've been studying for a long time, he was one of the 12, one of the original disciples. You know, in this book, he has never called anyone else a disciple except the 12. The very first person who gets that honor bestowed on him or her is Joseph of Arimathea. And I think this is intentional. He's a disciple and he's rich. And we know he's influential and he's powerful. But that Joseph decides after Jesus has died, that Joseph decides he's going to out himself as a disciple is, is very interesting and a little puzzling. And, and out himself is exactly what he does. Because what Joseph does today in this passage, he goes to, to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. And when he, and he's given, he has enough clout that he, A, gets an audience with Pilate, and B, Pilate gives him what he asks for. And he takes the body of Jesus to do what with it? Does he, does he desecrate the body of Jesus? Does he treat it poorly? No, he, a, linen, um, a linen cloth was expensive. So he treats Jesus' body uh, very respectfully, and he puts the dead body of Jesus in his own personal like, grave. Some of you, I don't want to be morbid this morning or make you think about things you don't want to think about, but some of you might have a, plot, a little plot bought out here on the hill north of town, right? Some of you may have your burial place picked out or, or wherever you're from. And there could be something that would happen. It would be something probably unplanned and tragic to someone you love, but there could be something that would make you decide, you know, I, I know I bought that place for me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let someone else be buried in that place that I bought for me. That could happen, but my guess is you wouldn't normally or naturally do that for someone you hate, right? It would be, it would be someone close to you, someone you love. So when he does this for Jesus... There is no hiding any longer his feelings about Jesus. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He knows their plans. He knows they are going to come looking for the body of Jesus. And he knows when they find the body of Jesus, where are they going to find it? In his own family tomb. So he's no longer a secret disciple. That's how he outs himself. The question is, why now? He's a high-ranking member of the Sanhedrin, the people the Bible holds responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. If he were really a full-on disciple of Jesus, wouldn't it make more sense if he would have done something bold before they killed Jesus? Wouldn't that make sense? Or... Had he waited until Jesus rose from the dead? That would make sense. Lots of people become courageous disciples after the resurrection. Joseph is like the only one who becomes a bold follower of Jesus after his death and before his resurrection. That, I think that maybe is why Matthew lets him be the first 
to be called a full-on disciple. The only reasoning I can come up with of why Joseph of Arimathea was suddenly so bold for a dead Jesus is because he must have been paying attention to the crucifixion of Jesus. Last week's passage, last week's sermon from the cross, Jesus asked the big question. What was it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And after he asked that question, God the Father started answering the question. He tore the veil in two. He caused the resurrection of the dead. He caused the people who had executed Jesus to become converts to Jesus. As if God the Father was saying, that's why I forsook my son. And something clicks inside of Joseph of Arimathea. And I believe he understands. Jesus took my place in death. You know what happened at that cross? Jesus took my place in death. You know, I think that's what happened because he goes and asks for the body of Pilate. And what's he do with it? He lets Jesus take my place in death. He took my place there. The least I can do is give him my place that I planned to lay when I died. That's Joseph of Arimathea. He buries Jesus respectfully. Let's Jesus take his place yet again. As was done, they roll, he rolled a huge stone in front of that tomb. And he went away. The next day, Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees, the, the Sanhedrin, they have learned where Jesus' body is. And so basically, they go to Pilate, and they say this. You allowed Jesus to be buried. Now, we want you to make sure he stays buried. Which is kind of ridiculous. That's what they do. They go in front of Pilate, and they say, you allowed him to be buried, but here's the story. They call him a deceiver. This, this guy deceived people into thinking he was the king. That's why we made you or coerced you into executing him. But we know he promised to rise again. Did, did Jesus ever predict that he would be killed and then rise again from the dead? Yes. But he, he, he did that three times at least to his disciples. But do you know Jesus predicted his resurrection even to his enemies? He did. Two religious leaders, one time they asked Jesus for a sign, for a miracle. Do you remember that? And Jesus wouldn't do tricks on command. And he said, here's the only sign I'll give you. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for parts of three days, so the Son of Man is going to be in the heart of the earth for parts of three days. And they knew what he meant. They knew Jesus predicted he would rise from the dead. Now, they didn't believe Jesus would rise from the dead, but they knew he predicted it. And so they go to Pilate. They say, Pilate, you think you've, got, you think you've had Jesus' problems up to this point? Well, if the disciples come and steal his body and start some fake rumor that he has come back to life, you're going to have even worse Jesus' problems. So we want you to give us a guard 
so that we can lock that grave down so that there's no way the disciples can come and steal that body because deceiving people into believing he had risen from the dead would be even worse than deceiving people that he was a king to begin with. And by this time, Pilate has to, boy, he wants to be done with this Jesus thing. He washed his hands of the whole thing. He tried to, right? The, the trial's given his wife nightmares. This is just terrible. So he says, sure, you have a guard, which that's been misunderstood over the years because the kind of the way we read that in English, what he does is he, Pilate gives them a guard of soldiers. These are Roman soldiers. In some of our translations, it can seem like Pilate refuses. I'm not going to give you a guard. You have your own soldiers. Use your own soldiers. That's not what he says. We know these are Roman soldiers because of how scared they are of Pilate later. So he gives them permission. Take a guard, which is a collective, not one person. Like if you see a color guard in the parade, is that one guy with a flag or is there usually more than one guy? It's more than one guy. So he gives them that kind of a guard of Roman soldiers and he tells them something that I think is just thick with irony. I don't know if Pilate meant it this way, but look at what he says. Take this guard of soldiers and you guys go and you make that tomb as secure as you can. Knock yourselves out. But you're wasting your time. Because if he's not God, he's not getting out of that tomb. If he's not God, his followers aren't going to take the risk of coming to steal his body. But if he is God, you can do whatever you want. You're not going to stop him. But they do it. They take the soldiers. They go and they, they, they make this tomb secure by sealing the stone. This is, this is not a J.B. Weld situation. Okay? They don't seal it physically. This is, not a, this is not gorilla glue around the, uh, around the circle. This is, a, this is a seal, more like if you go buy a new, if you stop on the way home and, and buy a bottle of ketchup, you, you have to take the, the top off and there's a seal inside, right? A safety seal. That doesn't keep you out of there. It just lets you know if someone's already been in there, right? That's the seal. They would have taken soft clay and, and put it, Put it here where the, the stone met the wall. And then as that dried, it's like a tamper-proof barrier. It just will let you know if anybody has gotten in there. Or in this case, if anybody's gotten out. That's what they do. And that's the story. That's the story of the women who stayed nearby. Joseph's bravery. Jesus' burial. And the religious leader's attempt to make sure Jesus stayed buried. Now, what do we learn from all that stuff? What do we learn about the providence of God and God's ability to work in behind-the-scenes way where nobody could ever know God is even at work? That's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. First, the women who stay close to Jesus in his death and are there as he gets buried... They're a good reminder that God has long been in the business of using the powerless, the weak, the exploited, the invisible. 
There is no one invisible to our God. There is no one worthless to our God. There's, there's no one who doesn't matter to our God. God is all, always using the weak things of this world to shame who? The strong. The foolish thing, things of this world to shame the wise. These, these women could stay in relative, safely close, in relative safety close to Jesus because the Jews and the Romans didn't think they were a threat. They could never do anything that mattered. But these are the people God uses to, to be the very first evangelists to spread the news. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. God can use the powerless and the weak. He could then. He does now. Second, Joseph of Arimathea. We learn multiple things from Joseph. The first one I want to share with you is this. Notice, between the women and Joseph, do you know how much of um, Israeli like classes and status existed between these women and Joseph of Arimathea? Like They are the bookends of Israeli society. Galilean women were nobodies. And Joseph of Arimathea was at the pinnacle. And if God can use these women and Joseph of Arimathea, there is no one he can't use. But in Joseph of Arimathea, we're reminded anyone but anyone can become a, a Christ one, a Jesus follower, a Christian, a disciple. Here's why I say that. During Jesus' ministry, what did he say about the religious leaders of Israel? What was his opinion of the, the religious leaders of Israel? He wasn't much of a fan, was he? You remember any of the names Jesus called these guys? He called them hypocrites like on every other page of the book of Matthew. Um, he called them snakes. He called them um, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. That's not a compliment. Right? He called them blind guides. Anybody think of another one? I'm probably leaving some out. How about this? What did Jesus say was the likelihood of rich people making it into the kingdom? Jesus said, it's more likely for something to go through something else. What was that? It's more likely for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. By Jesus' description, Joseph of Arimathea is the least likely disciple in the whole book. He might be where you and I start our team, but he's the least likely disciple from Jesus' perspective. But remember, Jesus said with those, with men, stuff like that is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Many of you, Jenny and Miguel shared this this morning. I'm so glad they did. Many of you have friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers that you don't think could ever become disciples of Jesus. 
If Joseph of Arimathea, a member of a, a respected voting member of the Sanhedrin, could risk his life to give Jesus his burial spot, there's no one beyond the reach of God. In last week's passage, God took Jesus' executioners and made them disciples. We go one more paragraph. He's taken a member of the Sanhedrin and making him a disciple. Folks, don't, don't stop praying for the people you think won't believe. Keep praying. Keep seeking opportunities to share. Pray for the people who are around that person. Pray for the people they respect and love. Pray that they would have their hearts changed by the God of the universe that might make it to that person. Pray, 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 and look for opportunities. I'm here to tell you, many of us who are in here right now this morning are the people nobody thought would ever be disciples of Jesus. And here we are. Another thing that Joseph of Arimathea reminds us of is that once someone comes to understand what God did for them at the cross, wait a second. That was supposed to be my fate before God. That's what I deserved from God. And God put his only son, the one in whom he is well pleased, through what I deserved to spare me from that. Once someone comes to understand and accept and believe the gospel, that should change a person. Joseph was changed. Suddenly, the words of that old song that we sing sometimes, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and what? Grace. When I am struck by the grace with which my God has treated me, that should change me and my priorities. Suddenly, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been quiet, even though he believed that Jesus was who he said he was. We know that. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, but he knew Jesus was the Christ and the Son of God. But he didn't say anything until he realized the grace with which God was treating him because of the brutality with which God treated Jesus. And suddenly Joseph didn't care what he stood to lose anymore. They can throw me off the Sanhedrin. They can throw me in jail. They can take away my life. But I'm not going to be a secret Christian anymore. When someone believes in Jesus, God wants to change a life. Another way we see the providence of God at work through Joseph of Arimathea. I believe Joseph thought he was making these decisions on his own to go and ask for the body of Jesus and bury him in his own tomb. But 700 years before Jesus was crucified, in the suffering servant passage of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53, there's this one little 
prediction about Christ tucked in there that I don't think anybody understood for 700 years. It's on the screen here. This is from the, uh, from the New English translation. It says, they, the people who, who killed the Messiah, they intended to bury him with criminals, but he ended up in a rich man's tomb. 700 years before it happened, God ordained that when the Messiah was killed, he'd be in a rich man's tomb. I don't think anyone understood that that was being fulfilled. I don't even think Joseph understood that was being fulfilled, though he might have. And finally, from the Sanhedrin, we see God's providence at work. The religious leaders, God used them to prove what they had tried to prevent. This is one of my favorite things about this passage. These guys who hated Jesus certainly were not following God at all. They come up with a plan because they want to make sure and they go and ask Pilate, we want, we want to make sure, we want to use the military might of the Roman army to make sure the disciples of Jesus cannot come and steal his body and make up some lie about him being resurrected from the dead. And Pilate says, go ahead. But more importantly, God says, go ahead. And God uses them to prove what they tried to prevent. Because they, they succeeded. You know that? They absolutely succeeded. Do you remember what their goal was? Their goal was to make sure there's no way the disciples of Jesus could come and steal the body of Jesus. You know what? There is no way the disciples of Jesus came and stole the body of Jesus. They succeeded. What they didn't count on is Jesus didn't need his disciples to get his body out of that tomb. Father would take care of that just fine. And these men who had evil intents behind what they planned, the God of the universe used them as one of the key proofs that Jesus actually did rise, raise from the dead because his disciples couldn't have got in there and stolen his body. Come back in the next two weeks and we're going to talk about why first the resurrection is so. Do you have to believe in the resurrection to be a Christian? I mean, come on, that he really raised from the dead. Come back next week, we're going to talk about why, yes, you do. And then the week after, we're going to talk about why it's a very logical thing to understand. You don't have to leave your brain at the door in order to believe against all reason that Jesus rose from the dead. Because God is always at work. Sometimes in miraculous ways like the resurrection, and sometimes using his divine providence. That's the God we worship, the God who saved through the cross and the God who is constantly working in a million behind the scenes way to work everything toward his will to save many. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for the miraculous ways that you intervened into our world by sending the Lord Jesus to be born of a virgin. To, to have a ministry filled with miraculous healings and uh, miraculous controls over nature so that he could demonstrate that he was God in the flesh, that he is God in the flesh. 
But God, we also thank you for your providence that you are powerful enough to be at work even when no one knows you are at work. Help us to never doubt. Help us to always remember that you are still at work no matter what is going on around us. And God, we pray, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, that that you would be at work in the lives of our unbelieving family members and friends and co-workers and neighbors, that you would show yourself powerful by saving some of those that, that we think could never, be, could never become believers. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts to know how we can be involved in that process of making disciples. God, I pray you would, you would clean out of our brains and our hearts that list of people that we think are too far gone and clean out of our minds and hearts those lies that say we are too, are too little, are too less than, are too unworthy, are too unqualified to be a part of what you are doing. You have been using the weak things of this world for thousands and thousands of years to get your will accomplished. So God, we are a weak people and a sinful people. But we ask that you would use us to make disciples who would make disciples and that you would get all the glory and the praise for saving many. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.